Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 16. This is part 4. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome, Pete. Where so, are we? <laughs> okay, so I want to, I'm, I'm just going to quickly read the sentence that this started all this because the next sentence is the one I want to talk about, but I want to sort of put oh, okay. context in. So, so you read the sentence, we fail to understand that a particular thing is merely an artificial definition by our senses and some in, um, indefinable cause infinitely surpassing that thing so we got there and then the next sentence Mm -hmm. i think is quite interesting but a thing may acquire its own individual and unique soul and in that case the thing exists quite independently to our receptivity many things possess such souls especially old things how old houses old books works of art etc now that i thought wow that's an interesting sentence if ever i read one but so many people actually resonate with that. Um, my example is the house that I live in now. I came over here um, seven, seven years ago, uh, looking for houses, looking for houses, and hadn't got much time because all my stuff was on a container ship. <laughs> you know, yeah, on see, its way. <laughs> you, you, you could go onto the internet and you could see how it was coming up the Suez Canal and all the rest of it. It's, it's really here. I need a house. I'm going to buy a house. And I'd looked at loads and then a house fell through on us. I can remember coming to this house here now and I can remember when the door opened, I put one foot inside and I was buying it. And I, I, I didn't even haggle. It was like, I'm having it. I'll buy it now. Pay your cash. There it is. I've got cash. Or I, all you've got to do is be out in two weeks. But I felt it. I felt the house. And I still feel this house. This Even even more so now, now that I've made it mine, uh, you know, we've, we've put our, our own our own stamp on it and put our own things in it uh, but I still feel this house when I come home no matter how long I've been away or however short the time I've been away I get that feeling in the heart when I step through that door um, yeah lots of people have had that and you, people have had the opposite experience as well haven't they they felt that you can go into a place and feel oh my god this is a horrible place do do the events that have taken place within a place add to this this idea of the soul of the place, this soul of location. I'm absolutely convinced that they do. Well, I'll tell you something that, that I've done that kind of illustrates this for me is I've had three friends who have had trouble selling their houses and there's nothing wrong with the house. You know, they've, they've staged them properly. You know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's not one of these places that you think, oh, yeah. no one's going to buy that. And they just, in these three separate instances, they have had just nothing selling. And I've gone, and each time I've gone, I've sat outside the house, I've just looked at it, but looked beyond it, looked and, and felt the house, like felt what I believe is the soul mm-hmm. of the house and had a conversation. I said, you know what? They're not coming back. They're moving out. They, they want to go. You need to let go and find your new um, person to come in and live your house. Yep. Within three days in each instance, that house sold within three days. And to me, I felt what I'd done, the house was hanging on thinking, oh, well, you know, nothing's changing. And when it got, when that 
And I'd say the soul of that house understood, oh, they're going. I need to, like a taxi, put my light on, be available, be up for sale. Suddenly the people who were looking for houses saw that house, saw it differently. Yeah. I'm ready for new, new, new owners. How brilliant is that? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's. What I like about that sentence uh, that you you read out just is that he says that and he he doesn't even feel the need to explain. It. I know. He moves on. I look at that's the, He just rolls a line no, under it. It's got the line under it. Yeah, I was going to say he's he's put the line <laughs> underneath it in a new section. Now, what I love about that, and I do love that he's done that, is because. Um, You'd have to be the the most cold-hearted reptile of a human being not to have not to have experienced feelings and empathy in that way. Mm. It, it is true. for 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 many for most humans that is part of the human experience to understand mm. um, that these things have, and I love the fact that he uses the word soul. They have a soul. Yeah, soul is the word. Yeah, for me. Yeah, soul is the word. And he's put, um, many things possess such souls, especially old things. And he's put especially old things in italics in my version. Yeah, mine too, yeah. Without explaining it, and what he's saying is that you get an accretion over time of the experiences of everything and every person and every other soul that's had a communication or come into contact with that that thing that object whether it's just by seeing it whether it's by touching it whether it's by, by being connected with it like you're connected with a house that you walk into and live in um this is absolutely brilliant i i this bit here is where mm. the whole soul of Spensky's book lies in mm. that one little section i mean we have much to go on to continue to go on but that to, that to me is the heart of everything yeah I, I'm 100% with you. And I think, too, when I think about this, this concept of these, think everything having this soul, the soul experiences things over time. So old things, old houses have experienced so much more than new houses. So that soul has grown based on those experiences. Like, well, grown, I mean, like, has, has accumulated those experiences. So has, a, I think, when you look at older things, it's easier to feel it, is what I'm saying. It's easier to feel the soul of an old place because it's it's heavier. It's well, it's richer. It's it's. Well, it's rich got more things to see. If I if I yeah. show you a, a blank sheet of photocopier paper, you probably see you'll see the sheet of paper, but there's nothing else to see here, is it? If Picasso had done a sketch on it and signed it, you pay a lot more attention to it, and you'd be looking at at the the meaning and the message and the feeling that the that Picasso had put into the, the sketch and everything else. What did he mean by that? And then you'll start feeling it and then you'll get interpretations and so on. How do you think the tarot works? Mm. It speaks it speaks in that language. Anyway, moving on, yeah, we right. don't want to go down. Yeah, that, moving that on. Road, but... So we're in a new section and I'm just going to summarize what I think this section this next section is saying and then we can look at some something in depth so what a, a couple of points he's making is that uh, Spensky's making a point that we cannot know higher consciousness if we only understand consciousness analogous to ours so that's his first point um, he says indeed we have no reason whatsoever to think that in a higher section of the world i.e in four-dimensional space there is no consciousness on the contrary um everything logically points to the conclusion that they must exist and must be more powerful than ours so 
if we're trying to explain um, something higher in terms of the lower, that it's not possible because it is uh, more powerful than ours. It's out of what, what, mm-hmm. we, what we know uh, for, for analogy. Yep. He says, but extrapolation says that there must exist, if, if, that, this, that this higher consciousness must exist if we consider looking at where we are and looking at lower consciousness. Now, I know he uses the animal and plants um, yeah, concept yeah, again, I'm which we've, we've gone go over, but there. nonetheless, we can get the analogy that, you know, we, we can have many different levels of consciousness existing in the one in the one space. Well, all you've got to do is look at the ocean. You can have a peak and a trough of a wave that's in a continuum. You've got one ocean, but you've got mm-hmm. loads of variation and and not just the peaks and troughs of waves, you've got density, temperature, all different, all unique within the one thing. Oceans are mm. great for, for describing this idea of one thing having different, um, different ideas, separate ideas. But we, we, we do recognize it as one ocean. This is the thing. So you go, you go swimming in the waters in the Indian Ocean. You know, let's go say you go to the Maldives or something. And it's so warm. It's like bath. It's like taking a bath. Try that in the North Atlantic. Yet, yet it's still the same. The same ocean. It's the same water. Yeah. So point is that there must be, by extrapolation, the concept that there are consciousnesses higher than ours. And he does say, but when all is said, the most important thing is that we can have no reason to regard our consciousness as unique and the highest form of consciousness in the universe. So, you know, if we think we're the top of the pile, that in itself doesn't make logical sense. If we extrapolate that in the same space, we can have varying levels of consciousness. So why would we say we're the top? Why is it, you know, we just don't understand consciousnesses that are at a higher level than ours? Well, let's say we hit, let's say that we hit, we hit a level where, where we find that there is a creative conscious by the way they're all creative so if we if we look at a level what we're doing is we're looking at a pyramid aren't we with a point at the top so mm. that let's let's say there are seven and a half billion human beings here all with their own individual psyche consciousness call it what you like but we're going to extrapolate that that above us there is another layer of consciousness that that's had the thoughts that have brought our consciousness into being mm. and above them there's another layer and above them, there's another layer. But what we have to end up with is one, from a point of view of, a, from a monist point of view, we have to have a pyramidal structure where one thing has a thought that creates two things that can then create four things each that can then create, and we have this pyramidal structure. This is why the pyramid is so important as well. What you're looking at at the top of the pyramid is the one indivisible God. Mm. But we still have a question that's important here. Uh, and it's the one that, well, what created God? We don't need to think of that. All we're accepting is that there is, the structure that we can accept is that there is one thing that has another layer and another layer and another layer. If, if you look at it like that, we could be pretty low down the tree. Mm. We could be quite low down the tree. And that's assuming that we are the only thing in the universe. You know, um, there are... If you watch Star Trek, there are entire galaxies full of other beings that are <laughs> infinitely superior to us in the in the way of thinking. Yet we always seem to get the better of them. And <laughs> but there are, you know, so there's there's a lot of ways that we can extrapolate um, an idea from this. 
But the idea that we the the that if we accept, which we we have accepted in this chapter, that that thought supersedes matter, that always in the process of creation it's thought. Higher thought will be the, the, the creative causation of lower thought, and the lower thought becomes the creative um, pulse, impulse for even lower thought until we end up with materialism at our level. And possibly we could talk about going lower than materialism, but we don't. We don't consider the idea of a, a two-dimensional or one-dimensional plane because that becomes very abstract with us. We, we're having an experience in a very, very narrow band of frequency, a very narrow band of illusion in the third dimension. It is, it is a very narrow, it's like looking through a tank slit. You know, you, you're, not, mm. you're not getting an expansive view of what there is. So, you know, if we accept that everything, that thought has to be the initial causation, there has to be something higher than this, than where we are now. And there could well be things higher than that and things higher than that, because we have, we do have to get back for, for monism to this point of one, of the being one thing. And you can only call that God. It does explain why we've, we, the concept we had early in the chapter is that the higher impacts the lower. So the thought has has so much more potential potentiality in it mm. than the lower because it's it's being cascaded down you know it's it's got yeah. um you know so it's so many more layers above it so spensky's saying okay so the question stands if we've extrapolated and said right well we're not top of the tree we're not the highest consciousness so there must be consciousnesses higher than ours how do we communicate with them and he says by two methods through communication with them, like how do we how do we identify them? So through communication with them, and through conclusions by analogy. So we've got two techniques to try and expand our consciousness to those higher consciousnesses. And so we can um, we can start with communication or analogy. And he says, you know, for the first, it's necessary this, for communication. It is necessary that our consciousness should become similar to theirs should transcend the limits of the three-dimensional world. I have a problem with the, this, this bit. You know, he says, the only way we can um, know about the existence of the psychic life of other sections of the world, if they exist, and he says two methods, communication, exchange of thoughts, and conclusions by analogy. Now, the exchange of thoughts, blah, 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 fine. Um, this uh, conclusions by analogy is very, very difficult. How do you create an analogy of something that you haven't actually seen? And that's exactly the point. He, even, he, even he says that, you know, the second, may, you know, the analogy may result as a consequence of the gradual expansion of the faculty of drawing inferences by analogy, by trying to think out of the usual categories, by trying to look at things and ourselves from a new angle and simultaneously from many sides. Hang on, you, you've gone into the realm of ridiculousness. Virtually everybody that reads this for the first time will say, I have no idea how what you're talking about. How can I look at myself from another angle and multiple angles and all kinds of things? This, this sounds like dribble. You see, now what he's doing in writing that is he's pointing out the difficulty of communicating this, this idea by language. It is, it is virtually impossible. Well, what I got from this was that it's the, the word gradual, which he has italicized, is the key to that. It's about starting to question. And I think he's mentioned this in chapters before, starting to question your reality. By posing the question, 
you start looking at things from another angle. For example, in this book, you know, you pose the question, uh, is this an illusion? Is the three-dimensional world an illusion? So once we kind of maybe ask that question, we start investigating that and then we start expanding how we see the world. So it's a it's a gradual opening up the mind to new possibilities and then if we find those new possibilities then we experience them once we experience them then we're kind of doing that communication with thought i think by italicizing the word gradual he's actually telling everybody that's reading this that's got a half an intelligence uh, at least that this is going to involve a process of training that it can't be abstract or chaotic, that you are going to have to undergo either with a teacher or through your, through your own exertions, which is to me is better, but you are going to have to undergo a systematic degree of training. And he does say that that will leave you with a psyche that is, now, that is different from the one that you possess now. And I think the word gradual italicizes telling us that this isn't chaotic and nor are you going to find the answer in this book. You are going to have to experience this. Yeah, I definitely experience. And he says, our mind grows and with it grows the power to discover analogies. So as we experience something, we've got something new to say it's like that but different. You know, it's... Yeah, but who can you communicate it with? Somebody else who's experienced it. And that's that's where I think he's saying that communication... Yeah, exactly. A different consciousness, you know. It's only when you've experienced that can you put an analogy in with some other being, person, who has had that experience and had that Mm -hmm. experience of consciousness. It's, It's all... Here's an example. Two people who've taken a psychedelic drug can talk about their experiences in a way that each of them will understand that people that haven't had the experience of taking the drug won't be able to make any sense of that. That link of the housewife, yeah, yeah that, that in California, um, in the fifties. That's what she was saying. Yeah, I, I can't tell you. I I can't I can't tell you. I wish you. What did she say? I wish I could talk in. Cut. I think she said psychedelic. I think she. she said, I wish I had language that was mm. that I could talk in psychedelic or something yeah. of that nature. You know, I can't exactly. explain this. And and that's where you are. Yeah, it's and and this is the thing. If if you have an experience, you can't you can't you can't put an analogy to it because it's like like I said before. How do you ex- how do you describe the color red to a blind person? No. You can't. Language does not permit it, and the experience has not been had no. to even put an analogy exactly. in. I can't even tell you what red is like. I keep coming back to our my favorite mathematicians, the abstract mathematicians who who live on on the edge of space, as far as I'm concerned. They can talk to each other and they can, they can build analogies about the mathematical language that they're using to construct these, these models of the universe. And when they talk, you, well, certainly I, won't understand a word of it. It's, it's they, they're using, uh, how do I know this? It's a, there's a quiz show in England called University Challenge. And I watch it, I, I obsessively watch it, and I, you know, I can answer a lot of the questions. When we get into this realm of um, theoretical, mathematical physics and cosmology, every now and again I'll get a question right. Every now and again. But mostly, even the question sounds like some kind of gibberish. The questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
because you haven't had the concept or the experience of the concept. I, yeah, so I, I have imagine. nothing that I that I can that I can pin a picture of what's being said in the question to. And that when one when one of these bright kids presses a buzzer and has the answer, it's like it's like being in the <laughs> presence of a magician. And does the answer make no. any sense if you haven't no, even understood the how, question? How, how can it possibly be when I didn't understand the question? <laughs> It can't make any sense <laughs> at all to me. It's like, <laughs> you know, I'm not the brightest. I'm not the oh, brightest dear. person on earth, but I'm far from being the stupidest. These people are talking about their experience of something that I can't. I can't pin what they're talking about onto any of my experience. Therefore, I can make no sense of it. I, I can't build a picture. Have you ever thought the whole show, that the purpose, you think the purpose of the show is for very, very intelligent people to show how intelligent they are, but maybe the purpose of the show is to mess with your head and they've just actually made all this stuff up and it actually doesn't mean anything, but they're making it look like it is. Let me tell you, and I, so I, just does I your think heading. all of the, theoretical <laughs> mathematics and cosmology, I think that's exactly what it what it's there for. I haven't got a, <laughs> I have a, no other way of making any sense of it whatsoever. And even that doesn't make much sense of it, but, you know, it does exist. And I have absolutely no idea. None. No, I'm digging it. I'm digging it. So uh, let's let's move on with Spensky because he kind of he kind of addresses this. He says, and I'll, I'll paraphrase. He says, "Man begins to penetrate the world of the noumena when they expand their consciousness, and man begins to identify with new consciousnesses like his expanded one." So as you, I guess, experience something greater in terms of consciousness and you communicate with other people or beings that have that consciousness, then you are starting to penetrate the noumena. You're starting to get closer to the essence of whatever it is you're experiencing. And he's saying that things then appear differently and their groupings change. So whereas on planet Earth we see the groupings of the body as organs, you may well see those organs having their own experience and consciousness and whatever independent not realizing they're being grouped up into a body in a third dimensional space yep, i i like i like where he takes that that idea as well this idea of things that we think are similar could actually be white vastly different and from from individual consciousnesses within the 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 unity um that, that have nothing to do with each other at all it's just how they appear to us in in this expression in the third dimension and he talks about such indeed may be any whole of our world man animal planet planetary system consisting of different psychic lives a battlefield as it were of warring entities i love me that. too and i've I underlined all of that that's why i wanted to put it <laughs> so 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 basically what we think is a, a, a wonderful unity um, on on this earth and something beautiful. It could actually be the result of, in an on a higher plane, totally different entities that, that are doing battle for with each other for for supremacy of thought in manifestation. It's strange. Yeah, and he further goes on, and this next six paragraph is there's a lot in this which which further takes that concept and I think it's very interesting because he's in essence saying that this consciousness of the whole like that mm. top of the pyramid is 
the the deciding factor as to who wins and who doesn't. So it's like in each, I'm just reading what he said, in each whole of our world we perceive a multitude of opposing tendencies, aspirations, efforts. Um, each exaggerate is as if it were an arena of struggle and multitudes of opposing forces. Each which acts by itself is directed by its own goal, usually to the disruption of the whole. So, you know, I guess that's our experience. We think, well, I want that new car, but I haven't got the money because that person hasn't given me the work. Yeah. Like it's all these opposing mm. forces to what we we think we're going to get. But then he says, to, to further go on, he says, but the interaction of these forces represents the life of, of whole, the whole. Yeah. And in everything... Of the whole, yeah. And in everything, something, in italics, is always acting which limits the activity of the separate tendencies. So whilst these opposing forces are all in it for themselves and trying to, to you know, get their top position, this limiting factor is the whole. And this is the sentence, and this, this next sentence is the one that says it all. This something is the consciousness of the whole. That's the, that's the top of the pyramid. That's the God bit. That's the top of the pyramid. So while we live our little lives down here thinking, you know, as uh, Aspensky called it before, the um, the economic man, yeah. while we think that that's real and the economic man and we're, we're all vying for our positions, uh, all, all this is just one small arena. All these it's other dribble. arenas are happening in other planes that are, yeah, that are impacting us. Um, and they're all warring for their own supremacy, but the, the whole... I'm going to take this on to a practical level here. One of the things that I teach and you teach, this, this idea of manifesting your own stunning life, or I call it manifest your miracle, and what other far more idiotic people are starting to call the law of attraction and, and creating an industry out of it. And a lot of the reason that doesn't work for people that don't know the how to swim in that tide because you have to swim with that tide and not against it, is that every mm -hmm. time you want to manifest something, you're coming up against the tide of thoughts and, and intentions of everybody else. And, one of the, and if you don't realize that, it's not a question of you acting independently to manifest your dream life. You have to manifest it within the idea that other people have other thoughts to manifest circumstances and things that, that you cannot control by your own manifesting ideals. So what you have to do is tune into the, here's a great word, it's a German word, zeitgeist. You have to do, to tune into the zeitgeist of the current moment and see where what you would like to manifest fits in with that. And if you don't, you're trying to push the tide back. You'll fight. All of these squabblers try, trying to live their own lives you know, unaware of what their thoughts are creating and the effect that their thoughts have on everybody else um, are doing just that. They're thinking and manifesting and you've got to be in tune with that wave. You've got to ride it like a surfer. Surfers are a great analogy. If you watch, if you watch great surfers, I mean, you know, World Surf League, you can go on and look at their Facebook page and they're constantly daily posting videos of, you know, the competitions and you see some great things. One thing you'll learn is they literally are making constant, constant adjustments to position, stance, everything to go with the wave. Yes. Superficially, the waves all look the same and they look, they're not. 
If you've ever been on a surfboard, you'll find that it's changing all the time. What looks like a flat slope of a wave that you're going to go skipping down, you take your focus away from how you're going to stay on that board for one second. Gone. You're it. You're under. Wipe out. Yeah. You're done. <laughs> and that that's a great analogy, Pete, because, I mean, I, I think to, to to illustrate your original point that, you know, you are competing with everyone. I mean, yeah, and it is a competition. Everyone would be winning. Not everybody yeah. knows that they're in a competition, but the fact is that they are. You know, their thoughts and what their dreams and their and their wants do impact on yours. Absolutely. Otherwise, everyone would win the lottery because we all sit there eyeing off the prize and thinking, wow, we want that and visualising it. And we might even have it on our vision boards and do all that yeah. stuff. But only one person wins the lottery. However, however, as and I think you've, you've pointed this out before, if you look beyond the winning the lottery – and say, well, what is it that winning the lottery would do for me? What am I really looking for? And you might say, well, it's actually, I really want to have peace and serenity yeah. in a home that it feels wonderful to me. Then you're making the adjustments as some some opportunities come in. Mm. You go, there's an adjustment. Yeah, it's not about winning that lottery. It's about that getting that feeling. I'm making that adjustment. I'll take that job. That's an opportunity. Um, oh, then something else comes in. Oh, yes, I'll do that trip. And then you meet that person who gives you that. Um, uh, another opportunity, you know, it's just that continual being aware of the opportunities that come because you're looking for that bottom level. I yeah. want peace and serenity in a home. It's about constantly adjusting your weight and your stance on the surfboard. Exactly right. And that's a great way of explaining it. And this is this, it's Suspensky's point where, you know, these opposing warring forces of everyone else, you're in this, you're, you're all, you're all surfing in the same sea, mm. but uh, those that, that adjust their stance and are flexible, still looking at the shoreline. You still want to get to the, the shoreline. shoreline. They will have the best experience of getting to the shore. The ones, the one, exactly the ones right. that can make the adjustments, go round the other surfers, and you know, instead of smashing into them. Yeah. You know what? The only thing I don't like about Spensky's description here is this idea of warring factions, because it puts into the idea that. People are against us. They're, they're not consciously against us. They're not saying, they're not, they're not consciously sitting there saying, I'm going to have these thoughts so that nobody else gets what they want. They're not, they're not sitting there. Very few people sit there thinking that. I know some that do, but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole right here. Um, you know, the, the, the fact of it is that most people are just going about their own daily lives not conscious of the fact that, that their desires and thoughts and what they want to happen actually has an impact on other people's at a level beyond the material. Um, I don't think it's a war so much as a chaos. I think it's chaotic. Do you know, I think, I, I think you're right in, in the sense that, you know, people are wanting stuff and they, if, if they're just saying, you know, do you know when you, when you want something and you just think, oh, that'd be nice, and then you don't think about it again, and you know, down the track you go, whoa, I've got that, I, I wanted yeah. that, and I didn't, I'd forgotten all about it. But if you're there focusing really hard on something, like the lottery win, mm -hmm. for example, like the, you know, the house, the, the, um, you know, where the house is up, up for the lottery grab, and everyone else is doing the same thing, and you get out your vision board and you put it on, and I'm going to win that lottery, that house. You are in fact warring with everybody else's consciousnesses. Because you are being too specific. Yeah, but people don't. Yeah, but people don't see themselves as warring with everybody else. They don't. They don't put put on their psychic armor every day, uh, and say, "Every one of you out there, I'm out to get you." 
They, they don't. But no, no, not in an everyday thing. But I say when you're focusing on something specific that other people are also focusing yeah, on. I'm only saying that the word warring in here is the one thing that I disagree with because it does imply a conscious choice yeah. for you against everybody else. And that, that's, that's the only, it's just the use of that word. I do, I do understand, you know, that that's not what he meant, yeah. but it's just the choice of word that I don't like. Um, that's, all, that's all. But yeah, you're right. You know, we're all going about what we think is the best thing for us at any given moment, totally unaware of at this higher level that, that, that could be um, putting a brick in the way of somebody else that they're going to stumble on. We don't know that. Yeah. So, so we, we have to navigate this. We have to navigate this really chaotic water. We have to find a serene way, which means, like you said, we don't take that straight path. We don't, we don't visualize really hard on that one goal. We are prepared to say, oh, there's an easier path to the right, easier to the left. Instead of me hitting that jagged rock, I can just go, go around it. Uh, you know, it, oh, it's going to take me longer to get to my goal. But I'm going to do it anyway because it's the easiest way. And then suddenly you find it's going to get you to your goal where everybody that was doing the straight path couldn't get there because they, they smashed on the jagged rock. It's, and then they yeah. became disillusioned yeah. and decided that they, it's not even worth bothering to try to get to the shore, is it? I might as well just be tossed around like a cork on this wave, being smashed into rock after rock after rock. And that's where you get the disillusion of people that say, nothing good ever happens to me. No, you can't. You can't make your own luck in this world. It's all a lie. I might, you, you, you get this, woe is me syndrome, this victim mentality. Victim mentality is giving up. Now, the, yes. other, the other horrific mentality is you've got to keep fighting. You've got to keep fighting and persist and keep going for it and do it really. Uh, that's another silly one. The route to, to your perfect life, your, your own stunning life, whatever that may be, is easy. The moment it stops being easy, you're not doing it right. You're on the wrong path. You take the you take these yeah. effortless paths at all times, even though it seems to be taking away from what you thought was your goal. You go on the effortless path every time, and suddenly you'll turn around and say, "Hang on, how did I get here? This is brilliant. This is exactly what I wanted. I'm this is perfect. It's not what I thought I wanted." Sometimes. Sometimes you get that. It's not what I thought I wanted, but this is better. I couldn't even imagine how good this is. Wow, great. Thank yeah. That's, that's... And that's why your analogy of the surfboard is great because if you think of a surfer, if they're going to fight the wave, I'm going to, I'm going to battle the wave and I'm going to go in this straight line against the wave, they will off. be They'll be off crushed. that board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they'll be off the board. So, but but the surfer that does that whole adjusting and mm -hmm. and rides that wave, everyone on the shore is going, "Wow, what a great ride!" And that that rider is going, "Wow, what a great." So even the the ins and outs of it is part of the experience. Well, here's it's not even, even it's not even about getting to the shore in a straight no, line. No, it's not. It's the experience <laughs> of doing it. Now, here's the other thing uh, with with carrying on with the surfing analogy. Something that every surfer will know is that when you go back out, the next wave you pick up won't be the same. And the thrill is you never know whether it's going to be a dumper or a shoot. That, you don't know until you're riding it. Absolutely right. And that's the and thrill. That's the thrill. And there's the so the so the experience of surfing and continuing in surfing, you know, you don't get to the shore and say, Whoa, done that, I'll never go out I don't need to go out there again, do you? You know, no surfer no surfer ever no. says that. What they call <laughs> what they what they can't wait to do is start paddling back out. <laughs> 
and that's how we should treat life you know you know if if you if you reach one shoreline go back into the ocean and see and see what it's like the next time the next experience and, and what you get out of that and you grow surfing i mean i'm not alone in saying this it is a very spiritual it is a spiritual activity yeah much more so than many others surfing is a meditation um i'd, I'd say is is almost pure it, it, it's it's quite pure because it has all of these elements if you go and sit in your little meditation room on your same cushion every day and do this I, you may have the most amazing experiences but the surfer is having a, a meditation within a human experience now this is where you don't leave your body and you go ascending and raise your vibration you actually have you actually have this experience of expanded consciousness without calling it that while whilst being part every every great surfer will tell you you can watch the world surf league competitions but when you watch them interviewed and you look at their faces and their eyes you know that that is something spiritual when they're out on the ocean that is spiritual whether they win or lose a competition and you see the ones that do the big wave surfings like the point nazar off off northern um, portugal is probably the most dangerous wave in the world it's just you can look it up, it, 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 but they, you know, you go out there and, and you watch them come down these waves. It is shocking, but there is this spiritual aspect of what they do and they will go with it. And I mean, people that ride the big wave, um, most of them, you watch it and they are on a different level. Those, those surfers are on, are on a different level. It's, it's, it's almost unbelievable. I don't know how to describe it. You'd have to, you'd have to look at it. Massive another yeah but, but you know I, I i'm quite glad that we we managed to come into the surfing analogy because it's a really good analogy for what we're talking about and what is spensky's telling us i don't think surfing was a thing in his day so he couldn't have used the analogy and and i actually think i don't think in russia they, they don't surf a lot do they I, I don't think so yeah um <laughs> but i think i think that this is this is great i mean i don't think you know we 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 have a few pages to, to go in this chapter but I don't think we need to go any further than this with this chapter people can read it um, I think he's, he's spending a lot of time um, getting us into this idea of different pressures of consciousness within this monist existence that the, the one the whole and that they can from our level of existence appear to be warring factions but if we were to experience this higher level then we would see that they're not even warning at all. They're just going about their own business. It's just how it manifests down here uh, to us mm -hmm. as, as a warring, as warring ideas. You know, they're just doing their thing. And yeah. So yeah, I think you're right. But I'm going to summarize the chapter as I yeah, see go, it. Yeah, then, please do. Yeah. Just so yeah. that, uh, okay. So this is my summary. The world of the noumena or the world of spirits is not three-dimensional. So we, basically we've said... The world of the noumena is a higher level than the world of the material. And nothing can be unconscious. So consciousness is the monism concept. Everything must be conscious because the soul of the world is consciousness itself. So everything has a soul because the soul of the world is consciousness itself. So it's that continuum of consciousness and it's just uh the individual 
souls are just part of that continuum mm. because they're, they're part of the soul of the world. And the world of causes is the world of marvelous, of the marvelous. So where the the world of the marvelous exists is in the world of the causes, which is the numinous yes. world. And simple is only that which is unreal, and real must seem marvelous. Marvelous. So simple is is only that which is unreal, and real must seem marvelous. Yeah. So that simplicity, which what we talked about, is if you if you're trying to, if something's complicated and you're pushing against the, the tide, you've not you've not dipped into the simplicity of the flow of that continuum. And the right at the in the last page that uh, last last part of the the chapter sums it up the mystery of thought creates all and that's that's what uh Aspensky is basically getting and at that's the one and, that, and that's where we get i ought to mention you know as a sideline to that that wonderful conclusion which I, I think it is the i'm not dipping out of the rest of this chapter it's just that the next few pages take us to the conclusion of this chapter Aspensky does that thing that he does where he uses other writers, other philosophers, to show how they try to explain this idea. So, for example, he comes back and he quotes Hinton again, Kant's critique of pure reason and dreams of a ghost seer. He brings into that an essay by Volsin, Volkinsky, uh, Vol, yeah, Volinsky, rather, sorry, and uh, he, he brings that into it and so on. And all he's doing is... The idea that we've just that we've just been discussing, he's showing how other philosophers have tried to approach that idea using language, you know, to to show that there are other ways of looking at it that are trying to describe this same thing. Uh, I, I'm not trying to um, to cut us off short. Uh, it's just that you know, if you read Ospensky, you'll be able to get get those yourself as well. But this is, I think, we've discussed the basis of what Ospensky wants to tell us in this chapter yeah no i i agree with you um is it worth looking at that very last sentence but in positive thinking we make the effort to forget all about this not to think about it at some future time positivism will be defined as a system by the aid of which it is possible not to think of real things and to limit oneself in the region of in the region of unreal and illusory yeah well what I'd say about that last sentence is that Spensky, and we're going to go back to an analogy from very early on in, in our exploration of this book, of the fairground. What we're going to do is we're going to reach a, a point where we recognise the fairground and we recognise the rides. That's what I believe that that mm. sentence means. That we will then be living, we'll be able to choose to live in two, two different realms we can choose to go on the fairground ride. We can choose to observe the fairground, but we can just at the, at the same time be in the realm where we control, where we actually have control of our thoughts that, that, that make changes to the reality of the third dimension. Yeah, and I think that's the whole thing. So his, his, last, his last sentence basically uh, gives pos uh, positivistic thinking a real, this is, this is what you're doing. You are limiting mm. us. You are. You're, you're put, putting a wall around us, as he says. Yeah, exactly so. And the mystery of thought creates all. So if you can expand into that mystery of thought, you you are able to negotiate that wave as you ride on because you, you can see where the changes are. You can then enjoy 
your materialistic, positivistic experience. And the, you can dip in and out of it at yes. will. Yes, and that's what we're here for. We're not here no, to, no, be no, to be slaves and, trying to get somewhere and, else. And we're and here to have a, a bloody good yeah, time. Yeah, we are. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't yeah. book this holiday yeah. to sit on a cushion trying to expand my vibration so I could leave. When I go on holiday, I don't spend the entire holiday desperately trying to get back to the bloody airport to get on the plane to go somewhere to go back somewhere else. <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, when you're on holidays, you're having a bloody good time. And the fact that the positivistic science created the airplane and yeah. and created the hotels and all the pools yeah. and the wonderful experience, got to love do. that. I think it's fantastic. But yeah, yeah. But if you think that's all there is in this world, yeah. well, then that's where positivistic science has put the wall around yeah. you. That's where it's it's uh, trying to corral you. And this is where, where it's saying. So I think this was a Me great Me too. I do. I really enjoyed this. I think that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in it. And uh, I think Spensky is starting to shine. Yeah, me too. Well, it's getting to the point where we, we're, we're spending two um, recordings on each chapter and it still doesn't feel enough. So, you know, no, so that, that, is, no. that is always a sign that, you know, we're getting into something that, that we, we attend. I don't know how anybody else feels about it, but you and I are starting, <laughs> starting to see some, some real sunshine here in, in what we're being told. It's good. Yeah, some great, great stuff and some real gems. Yeah. And uh, so, look, thanks no, so much, Pete, for, for yet again joining me. And uh, I look forward to uh, our next week, which will be Chapter 17, 17 yeah. which will probably carry over many podcasts. I think we'll be okay. We'll, we'll manage <laughs> and, it. Uh, exactly. So thanks, everyone, for listening. I look forward to your company for Chapter 17.